Well, Colleen's about to read from us, uh, for us the passage today. You'll see in the leaflet, uh, we've got there Revelation 5 and then a few other references. It's just um, chapter 5, verses 1 to 14 that we're looking at today. And this part of the Bible contains imagery that can be a little bit confusing. Um, now, I just want to say that we will be looking at Revelation later on in the year. So we're not going to get too bogged down into what uh, a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes means today. But for now, just bear in mind, the lamb is Jesus. Um, And I want you to ask two questions. Firstly, what do we learn about the lamb? And secondly, how do people, as they encounter Jesus, how do they respond to him? So Colleen's going to come and read for us. If you want to turn your Bibles to page 1240, and it's also on the screen behind. Thanks, Colleen. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, thanks, Colleen, and good morning again, everyone. On the 29th of November, 2011, at 1 p.m., my wife Grace and I were in Melbourne at our first church planting conference, and we heard a talk that quite literally changed the course of our lives. To give you some context, I'd been in vocational ministry as a pastor about 10 months out of college at that point, and I was serving as the gathering pastor at Trinity City at their 10.30 gathering. Trinity City had five gatherings at that point, and the biggest and fastest growing was the 10 a.m. one, which met in the cinema building adjacent Trinity City, which housed about 200 adults and 100 kids. As the staff team, we'd just learned that our lease of the cinema was not going to be renewed, and we had a little under a year to reorganise Trinity City to house these 300 people. 
The team quickly realised that it wasn't wise nor practical to just kind of take and spread these 300 people and disperse them across uh, four other gatherings. So whatever the plan was going to be, it was decided that it would involve a church plant of some description. And given the timeline, we didn't have six months to find a church plant or another six months to finish whatever ministry they were doing and another year for them to come and get to know people to lead out a team. The planter had to come from the existing Trinity team and only two people put up their hand to consider it, myself and a guy by the name of Chris Jolliffe. I had joined the team earlier in the year on the understanding that I'd spend at least five years at Trinity City learning what it meant to be a pastor and maybe then start to investigate church planting. So that's kind of the context for which Grace and I heard this talk. It was our first ever church planning conference and it was the first day and the after lunch session. So most of you know if you've ever been to conferences before, the after lunch session's kind of the graveyard shift where everyone's tired and full and feeling like a nap and things like that. And as the talk title, The Statistics Don't Lie, came up on the screen, many decided that this obviously was the session to skip and hopped up and started to head quite quickly for the door. And the speaker got up and said something along the lines of, and I couldn't check it because they edited it out of the uh, audio file, but he said something along the lines of, if you're heading for the door because you feel the need to get some work done, let me suggest that you are rushing off to waste your time very unproductively and you'd be better off to sit down. It was the very definition of an awkward moment, but most sat down and what followed was a tour de force of statistics of all things. Now, I've got to say, the first, uh, you can listen to it online, I can point you to it if you want to, but the first sort of 25 minutes is thoroughly depressing. I thought, where is this going? It was based on the latest Australian research on the church and our wider community. It painted a detailed and devastating picture of the church in Australia in decline with the average Australian church with 75 in attendance, ageing and slowly dying. That picture was followed up with another uh, moment of gloom, painting a picture of the very high burnout rate of pastors who, with good heart and wide-eyed optimism, were being crushed, and with over half the people coming out of Bible colleges being out of, Bible, uh, out of vocational ministry within the first five years permanently. Pastors were spending, on average, 20 hours a week on administration, 13 hours on pastoral care, 15 on sermon prep before trying to squeeze in all the other things that come with the role, uh, leading to an average 58 hours a week, uh, which I don't think's too bad, but bear in mind there's kind of a section of the church where pastors don't work particularly hard, and then there's another section of the church, I think, bumping that average up uh, to somewhere near 58. With hardly a moment spent raising up uh, in the average pastor's week, raising up leaders, evangelism or leading the mission outside of preaching, of course. The second half of the talk, quite thankfully, was quite a lot more encouraging as it delved into what Australians believe about Jesus. As a small taste, 53% of Australians, now bear in mind this is a, this is a survey done on non-church attenders, so this doesn't include us. 53% of non-church attenders fully believe that Jesus lived and died on a cross. Another 27 partly believe it, and only 20% don't. 31% of Australian non-church attenders fully believe that Jesus rose from the dead. 21% partly believe it, 
And, I, and uh, to add to that, 50% fully or partly believe that he rose bodily, physically, from earth into heaven. It showed very clearly that the very loud celebrity atheists attacking religion and capturing the heart of Australia's media weren't actually changing the hearts of many. Aside from a lots of uh, Christian apologists who thought, finally, we've got someone to argue with, no one else more broadly in society particularly cared. However, churches, while getting on average 300 unique visitors a year, weren't doing a particularly good job at keeping them, only retaining 4% of their church visitors, which was not enough to outpace those leaving the church for a variety of reasons. So the takeaway was that we first have to create welcoming churches responsive to those that God is already bringing us and secondly to create churches that devote a lot more of their time, prayer, gifts and energy participating with God in his mission. Well I was hooked and I came away very keen to start with a fresh piece of paper, the fresh piece of paper that church planting only provides and here we are at Trinity Inner South uh, five years after launching having celebrated by planting a new church. Over those years, I have to say, there's an incredible amount to give thanks to God for. It's been both humbling and a blessing to be a part of it all. Yet despite our best intentions, I would testify to the almost gravitational pull away from mission that exists in Australian churches, that gravitational pull away from spending our time, our thoughts, our prayers and energy sharing the good news of Jesus with others. So that is the context for today's talk on mission and indeed, as you'll see by the end, why this series as we uh, kick on post our first church plant here at Trinity Inner South. Know up front that I'm very keen to strengthen our resolve to push back against this gravitational pull. To do so, there are some building blocks we need to have in place. So as we've done each week in the series, we're going to do a little biblical theology quickly, tracing our God on mission throughout the Bible. And then we'll ask some questions of ourselves, both individually and corporately, so we can take some very practical next steps forward as we seek to participate in God's mission together. You'll see an outline in the leaflet of where we're going. And my first note there says that God's mission began with a garden eviction. I'll never forget reading through the Jesus Storybook Bible for the first time with my son Jack, who was four years old when we first got it. After reading the first couple of stories that climaxed in how wonderful creation was with perfect harmony in the world and perfect relationship between humanity and God and with each other, Jack was after one more story. And as most kids learn from a very early age, the easiest way to stay up a bit late in a Christian household is to ask for more Bible or more prayer. (laughs) And Jack had already learned that. So we flicked the page, and what we came to was, of course, uh, the fall of humanity, as it's put in the Bible. Now, I have to say, the Jesus Storybook Bible doesn't sort of uh, trace closely the words of the real Bible. I tend to think of it much more as a, a great kid's book that helps kids see from a biblical theological perspective, although it's you know, 15 years before they'll learn the term, how it all fits together as one story of God being on mission. So as we read of Adam and Eve believing Satan's lie that God doesn't want the best for them and they rebel against their creator God, 
we see their perfect relationship with God breaking. And this is how Jack's Bible puts it. A terrible pain came into God's heart. His children hadn't just broken one rule, they'd broken God's heart, they had broken their wonderful relationship with him. And now he knew everything else would break. God's creation would start to unravel and come undone and go wrong. From now on, everything would die, even though it was supposed to last forever. You see, sin had come into God's perfect world and it would never leave. God's children would always be running away from him and hiding in the dark. Their hearts would break now and never work properly again. God couldn't let his children live forever, not in such pain, not without him. There was only one way to protect them. You will have to leave the garden now, God told his children, his eyes filling with tears. This is no longer your true home. It is not the place for you anymore. And with that, Jack's eyes welled up and he burst out in tears and was almost inconsolable. So I had to very quickly kind of keep reading on and explain to Jack that the story doesn't end there. And as I talked with Jack about the whole Bible really being one big story about God on mission with a great plan to win his children back through Jesus, as we talked, as his Bible puts it, of God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love, a smile broke out on Jack's face and he went to sleep quite content. But it did strike me and stay with me how easily we as adults read over the story of the tragedy of the great fall of humanity. But also that that point was the starting point of God's mission, to win back the children whom he loves. If you're here today just checking out who Jesus is, it's a great day to be here because as you would have observed in almost every movie or book that you've ever read, the stories we tell ourselves as a society almost always start by introducing a problem up front and then spend the rest of the story with all the heroes and villains uh, seeing how that story and the problem is resolved. It's the Bible's claim that this fall, this break of relationship between us and God is the deepest problem faced by humanity. And as God's great story, the Bible tells us that God is on mission to resolve this problem introduced to us in the very first few chapters. And while much has happened, as followers of Jesus, we believe the story is ongoing, it's not finished yet, and we've been swept up into God's great resolve to play our part in winning his children back. So let me just give you a thumbnail sketch through the Bible then. As it unfolds, we see God's plan take shape in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, and I'll pop these passages up on screen. I'll get you to get your Bibles out a little later with some things uh, to do together. But for now, just feel free to follow along on screen. As we read of God entering into a covenant with Abram in chapter 12, with one man, a covenant that had a worldwide focus. The Lord God had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. 
We've seen in recent weeks as the years rolled on, this plan for God to bless all nations was clearly displayed through the prophets. We touched on Isaiah a few weeks back and uh, I think the great conclusion in the last chapter of Isaiah and Isaiah 66 says it all when God says, I am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages and they will come and see my glory. And as we come to Jesus in the New Testament, we see indeed that God has come, fully divine, fully human, in the man Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross for your sins and mine so that all who put their hope in him can have their relationship with God restored and are placing God's eternity secured. To kind of go through a sort of favourite hits of the series so far, we did look at Ephesians 1 to 3 where we read of God revealing this great plan, this mystery of all time, uh, that he's gathering us together in his church, saving us through Christ, gathering us into community so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Now, the sermons are online, but of course, the great summary of God's worldwide mission and how it all comes together in Jesus, we touched on again a few weeks ago in Colossians 1, verses 19 to 23, where we read that, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, being Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross, as we've remembered this morning in our meal of remembrance. We are told once we were alienated from God and were enemies in our minds because of our evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you, that's us, holy in his sight without blemish, and free of accusation if we continue in our faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. And of course, Jesus, as he gave his great and rousing final commission, called his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations of the earth. And we chose today's reading from Revelation to round out the story so we can read in the book how the story ends because it speaks of a time that has not yet come. And this is the point it would be great to open your Bibles to Revelation 5 on page 1240. Revelation 5, page 1240. Now, as Joe mentioned, we are starting Revelation in term 3 with chapters 1 to 5, and we will continue on next year. Uh, we'll get all the way through Revelation in the coming years. So read this knowing we'll deal with all the unfamiliar imagery later on. Because what's clear once we get the context, is that it's Jesus, the Lamb of God, to whom they sing at verse 9, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. And then thousands upon thousands of angels praise Jesus. And then every creature on heaven and earth does as well. Now I know it kind of exercises the mind to quickly rip through the Bible like that so quickly. Yet I did it today to make one simple big point. 
And that is to say, as we come to consider mission, we need to know that the mission is God's mission. He's been unfolding it for millennia. He is driving it. And as we see from Revelation, he will bring it to its conclusion. There will be, as planned, people from every tribe, tongue and nation there. And I would go as far as to say that there will be not one person more nor one person less at that heavenly gathering described in Revelation than God intends. Such is God's intent and sovereign power to fulfill his mission. Feel free to uh, engage with that one via SMS question line. But if we're clear on that one point, that it's God's mission, he is leading it, it's in his power, he will bring it to the conclusion he desires... It will stop us from thinking, well, it's all up to us that we need to come up with a plan to reconcile people to God, that God needs us to bring a solution to the problem that is all around us. Instead, we'll know that God has already declared our strategy, and it's for people like you and I to proclaim the good news of Jesus to others. It's in God's wisdom that he has decided that the local delivery point for his mission is through his church Communities like us gathered here this morning, but right across the world. He's already told us that some will reject this good news about Jesus' life, death and resurrection, and others, by the power of God's spirit, will respond in repentance and faith. If you're here today just checking out who Jesus is, I take it that it's no accident that you're here Let me encourage you to take a small step and come and say hi after the service and let us know how best we can share with you in all of its fullness what we believe Jesus has done for us on the cross. Or fill in a response card and just simply tick, I want to find out more about Jesus and we'll be in touch through the week. But for those here already trusting in Jesus, knowing it's God's mission, he's leading it and it's in his power he will bring it to his conclusion we can in response then start to ask some much better questions when it comes to mission. And I think the two best questions to keep asking ourselves are, what kind of me does God want to join him in his mission? And what kind of church does God want to join him on his mission? I think they're both great questions to keep asking ourselves. Firstly, what kind of me does God want to join him on his mission? Well, I think the New Testament is riddled with great answers to that question. One of my favourites is from Colossians chapter 4. You might like to turn with me to it on page 1185. Colossians 4 verses 2 to 6, page 1185. Where we're told to devote yourselves to prayer, be watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. The Apostle Paul, the great evangelist and church planner, is asking the church to pray that a door may be opened for the great news of Jesus and that when that door is opened, that he may be found to be one who proclaims it clearly. I think a clear application for each one of us is to be the people who pray for our evangelists. Jesus gives evangelists to his church and we should pray for them, speak to God about them, asking God to open doors for them to proclaim the great news of Jesus faithfully. 
One example is someone like Craig Broman from City Bible Forum, CBF as we call it, speaking on March 22 this month in an event called Blessed Are the Wine and Cheesemakers. Is it an event to invite your colleagues to where good food and wine will be matched in South Australia uh, in a tasting highlighting the rich blessings that we enjoy here in South Australia? And Craig, with his usual winsomeness, will invite people to taste of God's goodness, sharing something of Jesus in a relaxed, clear and inviting way. What kind of you and me does God want to join him on his mission? Well, one of the many things we can say is to be the kind of people that will pray for our evangelists with great passion, knowing that evangelists are there to help and equip us all take our place in God's mission and to evangelise. I suggest to you uh, that as you pray for such an event, your heart will be more in it. And you too, as opportunities come up to invite, will be more ready to go, more excited. And as verses 5 and 6 of our Colossians reading call us all to do, we're told to be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. My summary, and I always need little memory aids to remember stuff because I have a really bad memory, is uh, to remind ourselves first to speak to God about people, and in the context here it's asking us to speak to God about our evangelists, to pray for them. And secondly, to speak to people about God. We're all to be wise about this, seeking to make the most of every opportunity God brings. Now, to make up a statistic on the spot, just because we can, I'm guessing that at this point, nine out of ten of you will be saying to yourself, that's hard, I'm just not an evangelist, I've tried it before and it didn't work. Well, I'd put it to you that some of our most gifted evangelists find it hard too, yet we're all called to speak to people about God. Now, knowing that's very easy to say in polite company here on a Sunday, and much harder through the week. We bought you all a little gift this week. I didn't bring it up again, Joe. <laughs> Here's the book. Thank you. We spent some of our uh, mission budget for the year buying a copy of this book for every household. I think it's one of the best books on evangelism I've read. It's called Honest Evangelism, How to Talk About Jesus Even When It's Tough. We bought a copy for every household here at Inner South, or if you're visiting, please feel free to take one today. Read it. And if there's more than one person in your household, pass it on and read through it. It's tremendously, I think, realistic, funny and encouraging to read. It's written by an Englishman with that sort of self-deprecating humour that most of us uh, connect with uh, quite well. And as uh, I was walking out of the office this week, you know, feeling quite pleased with myself that we'd ordered a copy of this book, I do love God's sense of humour, because I was walking out of the office onto the veranda there on Wednesday night, a little bit uh, behind time to get home for dinner, and as I walked out onto the veranda, one of the regulars here at the RSL, who I hadn't seen in a while, came up to me and telling me, Matt, of how sick he'd been. He'd almost died. He'd spent quite a number of weeks in intensive care, then in rehab. And now he was back after thinking that his time was up. But now that he'd been given more time, he wanted to use it well and was on to me for a chat. And I said to myself, Matt, if you cannot turn this into a conversation about Jesus, you are not getting up to preach a sermon on mission on Sunday. (laughs) 
So I asked of his reflections on the experience of life and death and what what happens next after such a terrible time. And we were away. He was the one who went to Jesus. And we had a great conversation. And I will follow him up. A big takeaway I had from my Statistics Don't Lie talk in 2011 was that non-church attenders are far more willing to talk about Jesus than the average person in church is ready to raise the topic. I had a look at the results of the National Church Life Survey this week, which is what prompted this uh, reflection on statistics as we ran through it with the staff team. The National Church Life Survey is done every five years uh, to line up with the census, and it gives us a lot of insights into the life of our church, our Bible reading habits and all sorts of things uh, on evangelism. And the good thing is they put together the census stats uh, with the material here at Inner South. So one stat that jumped out to me was that in a two kilometre radius of this building, so it's not a very uh, big circle, a two kilometre radius of the Kernelite Gardens RSL, 57% of people identify as Christian. Now, of course, many don't mean what we mean by that. Most of that 57% wouldn't have a saving faith in Jesus. But the point is that atheists have not won the day. 53% of Australians fully believe that Jesus died on the cross. Another 20% partly believe it. Only 20% don't. 31% of people fully believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And another 21% partly believe it. 50% fully or partly believe he rose bodily to heaven. As we seek to speak to people about God, we will get a far better reception than most of us think. I bought this book because I think it helps us overcome the biggest stumbling block we currently have in Australian church life. So we get to the point where we're happy to be known as Christians, that we go to church and we love Jesus, we're happy to be known as that in the workplace or in our neighbourhood. But actually taking that next step to talk to people about God is one that most of us find provokes a great amount of fear. I think Rico does a great job at setting realistic expectations that yes, as you do, sometimes you will get strong pushback. But also encourage us that you also will find people with spiritual hunger, who throw by the power of God's spirit, will turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. I realise I'm running out of time, but I want to say just quickly, I also don't think spiritual gifts are static. When we become a Christian, it's not like we put our hand into a lucky dip box and pull out and unwrap it and see what our spiritual gift is. Oh, I got hospitality. I think we can pray for the gift of evangelism. I've been praying for it for seven years now and God has been very kind in allowing me to participate in his mission along with many people here from Inner South and be there at those moments where people give their lives wholeheartedly to Jesus. Some are spread across Adelaide, some across the world, some have gone church planting and some are here with us this morning. And it's been a wonderful thing to be a part of. And as we pray, seeking the gift of evangelism, I would say also seek out encouragement, training. There are some excellent training sessions on evangelism uh, coming up at Equip later this month. Equip is a wider network of uh, evangelical Anglican churches in Adelaide who get together once a year to put on uh, some really great training. 
Now, uh, I'm going for the first time in a while, because as I read through the uh, uh, list of speakers, there's some really great ones there, particularly on leading community groups, but also on evangelism as well. There's some flyers scattered around the seats and plenty more at the door as well. Now, I'm not saying all of us have to do everything, but I would love people to, first of all, take home a copy of this book and to read it. And for some of you, you might be ready to go and think, right, I'm going to pray and invite people to the Blessed Are the Wine and Cheesemakers event. Others of you might think, yeah, I want to get some more training and come along to equip. But for now, I want to focus just briefly on our second question. What kind of church does God want to join him on his mission? I have one verse I always go to when answering this question. It's one of my favourite verses of the Bible, and I'm aware I say that a bit, but this really is one of my favourites. And if you went back through our sermon archives over five years, you would know how I go here a lot. It's from the Philippian uh, letter to the Philippians from the Apostle Paul, as he writes to them from afar, Philippians 1.27. And I'll just pop this one up on screen. Where Paul writes, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence... I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. To me, that's a very beautiful picture of the church that every church should aspire to, living godly lives, worthy of the great news of Jesus, standing together in unity, in one spirit, and working together on mission, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now, there are many ways that we could pursue uh, that kind of life together as a church, and I want to say that, of course, all of those things are already happening to some degree. As I think about a church and my role in overseeing it, I sort of think, well, if we're kind of like a ship heading towards a destination, what kind of ship do you want? You want the fastest, sleekest, most purpose-built one that will help you do your mission the best. We've been uh, thinking and looking into, uh, on behalf of the Trinity Network uh, across Australia for the last two years, looking at the churches that do this the best in Australia. And as I started off this series, I said this series is one we're just seeking to be clear on what we're trying to do and then work out the best way together, and I'm imagining this is going to take the year to roll out, for everyone to make the best contribution towards that goal. There's nothing... uh, particularly inspired about the five M's that we're grouping things under. And I did realise this morning why the kids were so keen to learn what the final M was. Sienna was bugging me about it yesterday. She said, I know the first one, magnification, maturity, membership, ministry. What's the last one? What's the last one? I was really impressed that she remembered them. And I said, the last one's mission. And she said, oh, good, I'll get that. That means I get a Mentos tomorrow in the kids' programs. (laughs) Now, the other kids are getting M&Ms, which is a very uh, clever gift to get, but Sienna's celiac and she can't have M&M, so she's getting a Mentos. Anyway, she's pretty excited about that. She does love Mentos. But what we're doing, as you can see in the bottom uh, phrase on your sermon outline there, where we started five weeks ago, all we're simply doing is trying to be clear about what we think are the purposes of the Christian life. You could preach on them a million different ways because these these purposes just keep coming up time and time again in the scriptures. So as our kind of working definition We've said we want every Christian at TIS to be growing in their love for God, their devotion to him, living each part of their lives for him and praising him. 
And we used uh, the biggest stretch in the M world, uh, magnification to summarize that, that idea of living our whole lives for the glory of God. It's kind of the affections, it's the heart with which we bring to our ministry, our mission, our membership and our maturity. It's that desire for God's glory that drives mission, of course. We want to see God's name glorified. That magnification idea is, I want to keep putting it to you, the first and most important of the purposes of the Christian life. And what we're seeking to do as a church is just be clear on where we're going and work out how we best contribute. It seems to me the biggest stumbling block why most churches are on average 75 and most cap out at 150 is that everything just runs through the pastor and they become a huge stumbling block and churches simply reflect the strengths and weaknesses of their pastor. What we're trying to do is to kind of create teams around these purposes that allow people who are actually far more gifted in lots of these things than I am to make their best contribution to the church. So we'd love some people to think through joining our magnification team. Kelly Hobbs, who is here at nine this morning, is leading that. We want every Christian to be growing to maturity, deepening in word and prayer. Now, of course, there's heaps of people already serving in this, teaching our kids, our youth, one another, preparing Bible studies for us, doing all sorts of things. I've asked Cam to head up uh, maturity efforts, and there's lots of people, of course, who might like to join that team as well. We want every Christian to feel a strong sense of belonging to our church, understanding what drives us, our convictions, integrated and well cared for and caring for others. As I've observed in churches who think about things similarly, often it's the membership team that's one of the largest teams of the church. As we uh, pastorally care for one another, as we provide meals, as we get people to invite others into their homes for lunches and to help people feel welcome. And that's the purpose behind our new Belong course starting Tuesday week, to help speed up that process of which people feel like they belong here. We want every Christian using their gifts to serve, being trained to do it better, training others as well. That idea of uh, ministry to one another as being something that all Christians do and just trying to think the best way to do it, how to train people and release people into ministry to do it well. Joanne, who's service leading today, is our ministry M leader because, to be honest, she does a far better job at that than I ever would. And I have saved for myself my great passion. We want every Christian to be gripped by God's mission to see people find salvation in Christ, sharing the gospel, supporting God's mission as they are gifted, and passionately so. So as we try and say where to next, as we try and push back against gravity that pulls us away from mission, there's actually a number of things that I currently do that I'm going to stop doing so that we spend more of our time and energy and prayers and thoughts as part of God's mission in this world. Another implication is that I've asked Faith, who runs our office, to take on uh, more than uh, we had previously put into that role, which is why we changed the name to Church Manager and gave her Anita to work uh, for her a day a week. Faith is a great organisational mind that is being charged with helping us to run well and efficiently as we run this race together, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now I realise of course running through five sermons on this won't help embed all of this in your mind so as we come back next week 
There are going to be five studies that we're asking all our community groups to do, one on each of the M's. It's going to be a daily Bible reading guide. Everyone's invited to be a part of a community group like that, and also our Belong course that we hope many might come to also is running through that. But please know the purpose of all this. It is to achieve and in the end put more of our time, efforts and prayers into participating with God in his mission to strive to be the church that God wants us to be to participate with him. Let me close with that in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you that as you laid out your plans for all creation throughout all of time, as you planned out your mission, you chose to use regular people like us who you saved through the blood of Christ, redeemed and brought us back into relationship with you. We praise you for this. We pray that we might live in response with all of our lives, live to your glory. Please help us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Please help us to grow and to invest in each other as we grow to maturity in Christ through word and prayer. Please help us to deeply treasure what it means to be a member in your church here on earth. And please help us to always be looking outwards to welcome others in. Please help us as we minister to one another using the gifts you have given us. And please help us to do that to good effect with a broad partnership so that we can sustainably and lovingly and joyfully serve you all of our days. And we pray that this great concern for your glory and the great strength that we continue to grow and develop here as your church might outpour in a great pouring out of mission to your world, of conversations one-on-one with neighbours and work colleagues, uh, great things like City Bible Forum to invite others to, and that we might work together as one, in unity, as one in one spirit, striving together as one people for the sake of your gospel in this world. Please help us to do this. Please help us to push back against gravity. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen.